Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And since this is our first episode, let me take a minute to tell you why we're making this podcast. Both Peter and I are passionate about the field of forensic toxicology and we love the conversations that go on between toxicologists. And there are lots of ways that you can have these conversations at conferences, through reading literature, publishing your own research. And this podcast is certainly not intended to replace any of those but to add another medium into the mix where we can have the kind of conversations that toxicologists like to have. And for those working in our field who don't have a lot of access to literature and conferences and so on, this is a way that you can be part of the conversation too. So we hope you'll engage with us. We have an email address, which we'll mention at the end of today's show. If you have a question or you want to hear more about a particular topic, let us know. So let's get into the first episode. Today we're going to be talking about drug degradation. Drugs are like people. They're not static. They react to their environment. They can be changed by that environment, sometimes permanently. And so this episode, we're going to be talking about the many points during their journey from initial dose to final detection, where the drug can change into a completely new compound. So why is this important? Well, In many cases, you can't detect the compound that you're actually looking for. So you may not be able to tell your client whether the drug was there or whether the person was actually taking the drug they were supposed to be taking. And that's where things like looking for degradation products become important. So it's both qualitative and quantitative, isn't it? Because you might miss it in your screening or you might end up with the wrong level. Yeah, that's right. So one thing we're not going to be talking about very much in this episode is drug metabolism. Now, obviously, that is a change of a drug into another compound, which happens in a living human being. But that's kind of outside the scope of what we're talking about here. Mostly, we're going to be talking about chemical degradation, although we are going to be talking a bit about microbial degradation. Yeah, and quite often those uh, byproducts or the mechanisms of the degradation are completely different to what you might expect from human metabolism. Mm. But in reality, drugs can degrade at many stages of a uh, life cycle of an analysis. Yeah, even before... Consumption. So with uh, pharmaceutical drugs, for instance, pharmaceutical companies do tests on the drugs before they release them, where they uh, put them into extreme conditions, basically, things like pH, temperature, uh, to see if they're going to degrade over time. Yeah, so that's mainly to see how long the drug is useful for in storage. And they can't account for all possible conditions, obviously, but they put it through its paces pretty well uh, and try and identify any degradation products sometimes too. So this is really even before the drug gets into a biological matrix, isn't it? But it may still affect what you're actually detecting at the endpoint. So what are you talking about here? Do you mean well, so like if a drug has degraded while it's still in formulation and then someone ingests it, ah, right, they're, they're actually ingesting a different compound. And yeah. actually that's the same with changing of drugs during consumption. So you, someone might be consuming methamphetamine, for example. They might be smoking it, but during pyrolysis... It changes into a bunch of different things. We know that. Dimethylamphetamine, phenylpropene, a whole bunch of different compounds. Yeah, but when that happens, usually the major component's still the, the main thing you're looking at there, though, isn't it? So it's only a very tiny amount. Yeah, it is usually. Yeah. And as with the previous point with the pharmaceutical drugs, the person is still actually consuming that degradation product. So it's not post-consumption degradation, which is mainly what... Uh, we're interested in it and mainly what we're going to focus on. Yeah, so we're talking about how the drug disappears from a sample where it might have been at some time previously. 
So if you're doing post-mortem toxicology, one of the major areas of drug degradation, which you need to take into account, is microbial degradation after death. So this could be termed in situ degradation of drugs, couldn't it? Because it's mm. still the drugs are still in there in the body. Yep. And so you might get degradation of that drug over time. You might also get production of the drug over time. So things like ethanol, for example, is an obvious one. Um, yeah, that can go up or down. Yep. I believe cyanide can also be produced by mm-hmm. some bacteria. And when you talk about glucuronide metabolites, that's obviously got a nice juicy sugar molecule in there that some bacteria will like to eat. Yeah, so then you get the, you've got the glucuronide metabolite there, but then it actually gets converted by bacteria back into the original drug. So yep. it can artificially elevate the levels that you're seeing. It can give you a totally wrong answer. Well, not a totally wrong answer, but an answer that wasn't necessarily the same as it was at perhaps the time of death. Yeah, and it depends on the bacterial types, but obviously there's no predicting what bacteria is going to be present. God knows what they get up to. So a couple of drugs that are highly glucuronidated, uh, paracetamol and morphine. So you might get those going back into their native form from the metabolite. Yep, so that'll give you an elevated concentration of the free drug in your blood samples. Yeah, so you might be saying something's a, a lethal or toxic level when it wasn't. So some drugs are more susceptible than others to degradation. For example, uh, risperidone and paliperidone, they can degrade quite rapidly in post-mortem samples. And that's been demonstrated to be through bacteria. Yeah, but then other drugs have been put through their paces with bacteria as well, and they just don't seem to degrade much at all. Yep, so it's entirely drug dependent. And so another example of a drug that can be produced uh, post-mortem is GHB. Yeah, that's notoriously hard to uh, interpret the levels of GHB in a post-mortem blood. So when we're talking about the bacterial degradation of drugs, the bacteria we're talking about are the ones that are involved in um, decomposition of the body, and they of course come mainly from the gut, because that's the main source of bacteria in the body. There's more bacterial cells in the body than there are human cells. Bacteria are mobile within blood, don't you think, Tim? They've got various ways of getting around, yeah. but, but it can largely be just through a passive movement of the bacteria as they grow and expand out into the blood system. And that all takes time after death for all that, all those processes to happen and the bacteria to spread. But one way that that's the speed of that can be increased is if, there, if there's trauma to the body then and the body's open to the environment, if you like, other bacteria can get in. And you might get, even in a body that's not seriously decomposed, you might still get something like ethanol being produced if the if the body's been exposed to outside bacteria, even for a short amount of time, especially if the temperature conditions are right. Yep, that's also going to cause an increase in bacterial activity. One way that people try to stop decomposition in bodies is by embalming. And some countries do this a lot more than others, and this involves putting, taking out the um, normal bodily fluids like blood and instead putting in formaldehyde and probably some other chemicals as well. It varies from region to region. So not only are you replacing the blood that's already in there, and so your results are going to be completely, probably meaningless, I guess, you're yeah. also adding a very reactive agent, formaldehyde, into a environment where there's drugs which can react yeah, and people have reported uh, methylation, especially, of drugs. Most drugs contain a nitrogen, uh, and so you can get methylation out the nitrogen, which can then convert it not only into a new compound, it can convert it into a different drug. Yeah, like dimethylamphetamine can be produced, or um, you may even get metabolites, normal metabolites 
um, returned back to their parent drug. And it can even convert endogenous compounds, maybe putrefactive compounds, into drugs. Like so, a beta-phenylethylamine is yep, a classic one, isn't it? It is. Converting it into a type of amphetamine, depending on how it's, whether it's methylating it or ethylating it or whatever. So if you detect a, an NPS, a new psychoactive substance in a embalmed body, it can be pretty difficult to know whether it's a result of the embalming or whether that is actually an NPS that was present. Or maybe it was an NPS that was present, but it's not actually the one that you're detecting because it's been changed by the embalming fluid. So, of course, embalming is good for maintaining the integrity of the tissues, and etc., but it's not terribly good for us toxicologists. Mm. So, moving on from the body itself to when the sample's actually taken, you take a blood sample, for instance, put it in a tube, you can still get microbial degradation because you're obviously taking bacteria as well. Even though you're putting it in with a preservative, so you put something like sodium fluoride into the tube, and the idea is that it, it will inhibit bacterial activity. So fluoride doesn't necessarily sterilise a sample, of course. It just uh, inhibits the growth of bacteria. I think it's through uh, inhibition of its energy cycle. But the problem with something like fluoride is that it's a chemical itself, obviously. It can actually affect some drugs. So some organophosphorus pesticides, for example, are unstable in the presence of fluoride. Right. So it's always recommended that you get both preserved and unpreserved blood if possible, just in case you might need it for a certain type of testing. But the other big type of degradation you can get in a sample is chemical degradation. So this is where the drug's unstable to just the natural circumstances in the blood, like water, oxidation. Could be that, light, temperature, uh, all of these different types of things. So an example of that might be uh, heroin or monoacetylmorphine, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think there are enzymes that also do the deesterification process, but they're pretty labile to hydrolysis by themselves. Cocaine would yep. be another one. So storage conditions for samples are critical to have them in a dark, frozen place with preservative. So bodies, you're pretty hard to control the conditions of a body, but once you've got a sample, it's imperative that it's stored correctly mm. and transported correctly as well. But then the next step in the process is obviously when you take your sample out And now you want to start extracting your drugs out so that you can put them on some kind of instrument and start actually detecting them. Yeah, so depending on what you're looking at, you may be exposing it to harsh chemicals like bases and acids, which... Yeah, you do that on purpose in order to extract them out. You're trying to optimize the conditions for extraction of that particular drug or maybe for a whole suite of drugs. But remember, the the drugs themselves are chemicals. They can react with their environment. So like uh, zopiclone and diltiazem? Yeah, zopiclone is unstable in alkaline conditions, for example. Uh, Diltiazem, same thing. Diltiazem actually is uh, an interesting one because it degrades to its metabolite, desacetyl diltiazem. Uh, It complicates things? It does because you've probably already got some of the desacetyl diltiazem there, but you're increasing the ratio of that compared to the diltiazem. So things like esters and amides are... uh often hydrolyzed during metabolism, but they're also a chemical degradation as well, aren't they? Yeah. So in the case of olanzapine, which is notoriously unstable for a, probably through a number of different routes, I don't think anyone's actually ever worked out how it, how or when it goes off in the process, but it's definitely been shown to go off in aqueous solution to form a hydroxy, uh, I think it's called a hydroxymethyl olanzapine in yeah. one study. So that one's, olanzapine's a good example actually, isn't it? Because it degrades 
under multiple conditions at multiple stages, bacterially, chemically. So a lot of labs have, uh, they use deuterated olanzapine to monitor this antipsychotic just so that they can tell whether there's any degradation happening during the analysis because it can vary from sample to sample. So in that, I think the workers showed that they could stabilise olanzapine to some degree in the blood samples by adding ascorbic acid, but then of course you've got to think, what's the ascorbic acid doing to the other drugs you're looking for? So if it's a multi-analyte assay, then you may be compromising other things. So you're talking about use of uh, reactive solvents, well, even ethanol is quite reactive, that could yeah. Do some transesterification. If, that's right. That's right. You can um, get an ethyl group substituting for a methyl group. I recall there was a batch of pentafluoropropionic anhydride, which was used for derivatization of morphine for GC analysis, GCMS analysis, and it was tainted with a tiny amount of acetic anhydride. And the problem there was, of course, that there was a tiny amount of monoacetyl morphine being formed from the trace of... Mm. Yeah, so that's something important to keep in mind as well, is that what you're putting into your test tube for extraction, you think you know what's in there, but there's going to be some kind of impurities in the solvents, possibly in derivatizing reagents, in in whatever you're using. So, of course, that was picked up in the quality control steps, but nonetheless, it shows there's a possibility that that sort of thing can happen. And then when you get past the extraction bit, you're putting your extract onto your instrument, you can then get degradation... On the instrument. So you're talking about uh, in a gas chromatograph or something? Yeah, definitely if something's thermally labile, oh, yeah. you might yeah. have problems on a GCMS or a GC, any kind of gas chromatograph, really. Uh, something like temazepam oh, yeah. or oxazepam, yep. Yep. a thermally labile. So you, you may see a small peak or you may not see anything. So with liquid chromatography, you don't have the same thermal issues. Um, and with LCUV... You don't really have any particular issues. No. Except maybe mm. the uh, acidity of the buffer or something like that. But the mass spec's got a hot spot somewhere else though, hasn't it? So mm. uh, instead of getting thermal degradation at the beginning of the chromatography process, you may get it at the detector instead. So you might get some in-source fragmentation or degradation. So sometimes that fragmentation might be severe and you might not see any of the parent. Other times you might you might still see mostly the parent, but the quantitation is going to be affected because yeah, there's a whole range of different things that can happen in LCMS with that because you've got the as long as your fragmentation's consistent and you know it's happening, that's fine. But if the conditions in the source might change, and you might have a larger amount of fragmentation in even between samples, maybe some matrix effects at the source affecting fragmentation. There is so much going on in LCMS instruments. What about adducts? That we can't Tim, see adducts are another thing. Yeah, so you might get sodium ions forming instead of hydrogen ions. Get a bad batch of water with lots of sodium in it, and you can lose oxycodone. Yeah, so to a sensitivity to quite a degree. Yeah, so and again, that's part of the quality control process is having, you know, check standards that you're running to make sure that you're not forming those things. You've got to be keeping an eye out for. I guess it. we're sort of digressing a bit from the main theme, but doesn't matter. It's all good fun. Okay, so I guess if we're talking about the extraction phase, I suppose one way to determine whether you're getting these sort of problems happening is by looking at your calibrators. So if you get a bit of a wonky looking curve, you can say, well, something odd's happening here. Yeah, and there could be lots of reasons for it, but one of the reasons could be fragmentation in the iron source. And so some of these problems can be monitored by using 
know, regular check standards and things like that, uh, monitoring reference standards, or sorry, your internal standards for a particular analysis over time to see how they change. That's a good way to catch up with these problems. Yeah, if you've got a, a deuterated internal standard, for example, for zopiclone, which we were mentioning before, is um, labile in particular pHs, then you can see if that's going off during your extraction. And uh, the problem comes, of course, and this is a particular problem for zopiclone, where the deuterated internal standard might degrade into the same thing oh, as the analyte, yeah. which just adds another layer of complexity to it. So they didn't necessarily think about our particular analysis when they were making the deuterated standard. Well, the problem is with the with making internal standards, usually they're making them in the cheapest way possible. So they're the easiest hydrogens to substitute. They're the ones where they're going yeah, to put so the deuteriums. You put an ester on or something that's got a deuterium in it. Yeah. yeah, and that that often happens. Unfortunately, they're the first things that fall off if it's degrading. So speaking of standards, the other really important part of this whole discussion about degradation is reference standards so how and working keep, solutions. How are you keeping them stable over time? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Because they're, you might have uh, a reference standard which you're keeping in your freezer and maybe it's, so it's in the dark, it's, a, it's in cold conditions. So the drug might not be degrading there, but you, you might be constantly getting that out every day even yeah, to yeah. do analyses with it. It's a real logistical issue. So some labs... Uh, Deliberately, if they have a working solution they're using all the time, they subdivide it into tiny aliquots, so they only take out one aliquot at a time rather like, than the like whole... Like a single-use yeah, aliquot. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And of course, when we're talking about solvents, the um, solvents during extraction, for example, you can also have solvents during storage that can cause transesterification. So mm. storage in ethanol is not always a good idea. For something like cocaine, not a good idea. for example. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then you get drugs which degrade in, sometimes very quickly, in heat or light... So you take them out of the freezer. Uh, something like glycolazide degrades pretty quickly okay. at room temperature. I'm not sure whether that's light or heat, actually, that's responsible for that degradation. But definitely in room temperature, in light, glycolazide degrades. Promethazine is another one. Degrades very quickly. That's cool, that drug. How it goes so blue. It is. is. It blue or purple? Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm colorblind, so I don't oh, actually know. Yes. But it definitely changes color. Yeah. You can also get stereochemical conversion. So with zooclopenthixol, which is the Z form of clopenthixol, you can get that isomerizing into the E form. So some working solutions, you might need to prepare fresh every time. But if you've got a, if you've got a working solution which has a whole bunch of different drugs in it for your you know systematic toxicological analysis or whatever, you might be doing some mega quantitation method you just can't make it up every time. No, it's it's impractical. No, it's impossible. So for some of those methods, you you might not be able to have a common drug in the method, even though you see it all the time, because it's just not stable in the working solution. Or it may be that you just have it as a qualitative method rather than quantitative. Mm. So if you've got a working solution that you're using regularly, you may want to monitor it each time you're using it to make sure that nothing is going off. Is that why we have QCs? And this is a problem, even though you've got QCs in your method, this is a problem if you've got a working solution and a QC solution, maybe a mixed solution of different drugs, and you you pre- might prepare them both at the same time and maybe they last for <laughs> several months. And yeah, yeah, they're staying consistent relative to each other, but are they but just going off wrong. together yeah. at the same rate? <laughs> no, not. No, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> so no, that could happen. I think that could happen. It, 
which is why you've just got to be on the ball about these things and have processes in place to see if there's anything like that happening. So we talked about all these problems it can have, which can be a bit scary, but how do you monitor for these? Well, I mean, one way is using full scan instrumentation. Even that's not foolproof. That just means paying a lot of attention to peaks that you're not really interested in, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it's very time-consuming. But if you're using something like a triple quadrupole, or if you're using a GC in sim mode, for example, you're just not going to see anything apart from no, what you're looking for. Yep. So th- th- I guess that's on one extreme. Maybe that's better, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Maybe. Huh? Well, if you're using LCUV, it's it can be pretty easy to see if degradation's happening because you might see a you know, reasonably large peak and a lot of the time it's going to have a similar UV spectrum because it might just be like one of those sort of uh, functional groups which isn't really affecting the spectrum which falls off in the degradation. So the UV spectrum might even be identical which makes it easy to see that it's come from that. Yeah, so you might get lucky like that. But if you're using mass spectrometry, it is a little harder. So on a full scan instrument where you've got a TIC, often there's hundreds of different peaks to look at uh, it's quite an arduous task. To yeah, what do you what, what do you products. look for? Which peaks do you look at? You have got better things to do, after all. <laughs> <laughs> you want to keep going with your with your work. That's what I meant. Yeah, and it might not necessarily be a similar mass. You know, sometimes it can be. There, there's some drugs which might uh, degrade into maybe dehydrogenation. So there might only be a couple of mass units difference. You mean? Yeah, but who knows? But it's... if you're looking at one mass, you'll never notice that. Usually. No, that's right. I guess maybe if you're only losing, you know, maybe one methyl group or something, the retention time might still be similar. Yeah. So that's, yeah. maybe you only have to look around the the peak of interest, but that's not always a guarantee either. Yeah, the time it takes to investigate unknown peaks, which may or may not be degradation products, it just takes so much time to do that. It's not possible to do that sort of degree of monitoring in routine analysis normally, is it? No. I think often the way that these kind of degradation issues get picked up is when there's a problem, if maybe you're not detecting your standard for some reason, or your quality controls are failing, or your curves are erratic, something along the line. There's got to really be something that triggers it, because you're never going to be looking at every peak in a full scan analysis every time. Yeah, that's just too much work and... But still, this is where full-scan instruments are really useful when you do encounter a problem like that. You can actually go and have a look at the rest of the data. Otherwise, the data just doesn't exist. That's right. If, you've got the, if you're using an instrument in SIM or MRM, for example, you wouldn't pick up any of these. So one of the other difficulties is right at the end stage, when you've detected what you've detected, maybe you've detected a drug, maybe you've detected, detected some degradation products, They might be from microbial degradation. They might be from degradation during consumption. They might be, some of them, from degradation during the analysis, which you just couldn't eliminate. Obviously, it's better to eliminate it if you can. Then what do you report at the end? I would say if you're producing a compound during the analysis, like hydroxyalanzapine we talked about before, then that's probably a laboratory-based problem that probably wouldn't be reported. But if if it's a compound that's produced prior to receipt at the lab or even during storage and it should be mentioned to some degree yeah sometimes reporting a a bacterial degradation product for example is not just important for the client to know for that compound 
it, it also highlights that there has been bacterial activity and maybe that's affected the concentration of some other compounds as well, which you don't necessarily know the degradation products of. So you're not going to see that they've degraded necessarily. You're talking about like risperidone, is that a yeah. example? Yeah. Hydroxybenzoyl risperidone, you might not be... If you're not monitoring for that, you won't even know the drug's degraded yep. to some extent. So if you've got, a, uh, for example, a driver case where there's the sample may not have been stored appropriately and you find benzolecanine but no cocaine... There's an issue there, of course, if was there cocaine in the person's system at the time of driving or not, or was it just an old dose? Yeah, so difficult where they, where the degradation product is also a metabolite. So with the nitrobenzodiazepines, for example, like flunitrazepam, one yeah. of the, the metabolites is 7-amino flunitrazepam, but it's also a bacterial degradation product. Yeah, so they're hard to report, especially in post-mortem cases where um, they're going to be very rapidly chewed up by bacteria. Yeah, and hard to interpret because you're normally going to find, uh, even if it's a sort of a, a recent dose, you're going to find flunitrazepam and 7-amino flunitrazepam even before any degradation because yeah. it's there as a metabolite. But if you want to use these, the ratio of the metabolite to parent to try and work out how long since the dose or that kind of thing, which can be tricky anyway, it's made even more difficult by the fact that some of it's degraded. That's right. You can never really get a true answer. So what, what are your thoughts about quantifying the degradation products. Do you think there's ever a, a point to quantifying them? I think there is when you're talking about the seven aminos, for example, it's pretty important. What if there's been yeah. what if there's been complete conversion of the parent to a degradation product, or as far as you can tell, maybe you can never completely tell, but because maybe it's degraded to other things as well. But if there's been complete conversion, let's say, of risperidone to yeah. hydroxybenzoyl risperidone. Well, that, does, does that, quantifying... could be, that could be equated back to an approximate concentration of risperidone, but always with a disclaimer that you can't ever really be certain that that's where all the risperidone's gone. It might have gone to a number of different products and you only happen to be looking at one of them. Yeah, yeah. So it is important to quantify them, I think, if you can get the right standards. That's the uh, that's the rub, isn't it? Because yeah. a lot of these things, standards aren't really available. You, a lot of people might synthesize them themselves when they're doing the research to try and find out what they are. That doesn't mean they're commercially available. Sometimes the they're available through the pharmaceutical company if they happen to be a minor metabolite. And sometimes if, if you find a new degradation product and you contact the pharmaceutical company who originally did the research, sometimes they do have large stocks of these metabolites that they can give out occasionally. Yeah, or maybe even if, they, if it's something they found during their forced degradation studies, yeah. as we were mentioning earlier, they may have some left over. Yep, but that's... Not really a sustainable source, I think. Mm. If it becomes a popular enough degradation product for the tox community, then they should eventually be manufactured and sold as certified materials. I guess one of the, one of the uh, main practical outcomes of all of this these issues around degradation is that it's it's almost impossible to have one method which covers every drug because some drugs degrade in, in this condition or that condition... They might even degrade in the extract that you're using, yeah. like a lanzapine, for example, yeah. degrades in aqueous extracts. And so as, as tempting as it is just to have one method for everything, you really have, you're really making some compromises it's if you do that. Never that simple. Well, that's it for the first episode of the ToxPod. I hope you've enjoyed our ramblings about various toxicological problems and how to make your life more difficult. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting, taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.